The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Beyond Reality Radio, and I am your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here tonight. We have not only a great show for you tonight, not only something that's going to be really spectacular, uh, but we're also using some new software, so that always makes things interesting. If you've been paying attention to the show the last few nights, you know that we've been in uh, computer hell. So it's a, it's a cruel form of purgatory. We have had software issues, hardware issues, and everything in between. We have opted to make a bit of a hardware change here tonight so that uh, it works, and it does work. If we can control it properly, the the software that we're now using is far more sophisticated than what we were using, and it's kind of out of our pay grade. But we're going to try, and we're going to try to make it work. So if there are glitches along the way, that's why. Please uh, uh, forgive us in advance here. Um, Hopefully, we'll be able to make it through it without too many problems. But I'm excited because we'll have the opportunity to have uh, Orion in his moldy oldies back during our breaks, a little bit of in-break entertainment, which is exciting. And it's also a lot of fun. And there are people, and I won't name names, that actually look forward to the breaks more more than they do the show content. And we'll have a discussion about that some other time. Uh, we've got a, a really interesting show tonight. 51 years ago, a show filmed its last episode, a television show. And that show was Star Trek. And it was the original series. It lasted three seasons. And I believe it was CBS. And 80 episodes later, it was uh, it was ended. But many think it was ended very, very prematurely. In fact, many think it was a show way ahead of its time. And I tend to agree with that, given the fact that it wasn't long after its cancellation that movies started to appear, new television shows based on the Star Trek universe started to appear, and it's more popular now than ever. And William Shatner, who played Captain James T. Kirk in that original series, plus a few of the movies, is the one of the highest earning Comic-Con guests, celebrity guests in the world. And yeah, he did a couple other shows. T.J. Hooker, I think, was one of them. I don't even know. I know he did some other stuff, but it's all because of his work in Star Trek. And tonight, our guests, we've got two of them coming on the show, Mark Cushman and Vic Mignona. They are uh, together going to be talking about a book called These Are the Voyages. Now, this is more than a book. From what I understand, it's actually a a series of books, uh, several volumes. Mark Cushman is the author of the books, and uh, Vic uh, voiced the audiobooks, which have just been released. So this is pretty exciting stuff. Vic is also a producer and an actor and was involved in a fan show, that was a, uh, a web series called Star Trek Continues, which took the original cast of Star Trek, not the cast, the original characters in the original Star Trek, and the original sets and the original ideas, and continued it this many years later. Uh, obviously, different actors playing the parts, and in fact, Vic uh, played Captain James T. Kirk in the web series. But it was highly regarded, critically acclaimed, very, very well done, and that's um, it was a great experience for him and all the fans of Star Trek, and we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit as well. So a lot of great stuff going on, and we'll be able to talk about it tonight. Remember to go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. 
that is very easy to find, and it's free. There's no there's no charge or anything to subscribe. Uh, I think the only thing you need is just a YouTube account, which is basically just a Google account. So if you've got a Gmail address, you already have a Google account. And um, you just go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson, and when you find it, just subscribe. Also, click the notification icon, because when you have notifications on, then you'll know when we go live, you'll know when we upload bonus content, and you'll know what we're doing in general. So YouTube, go to JV Johnson on YouTube and give it a subscribe. Thanks for doing that. That's where we stream live. Great chat room there as well. We're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our guests in again. Tonight, it's all about Star Trek, the legacy of Star Trek, in fact, right here on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Beyond Reality Paranormal. I'm your host, JV Johnson. I'm going to ask that you support this program. The easiest way to do that, by the way, is if you're listening as a podcast, you just open up the description of the episode and you scroll down to the bottom. And at the bottom, there is a link that says support this podcast. If you click on that, you'll be taken to a page that gives you a couple of options for supporting the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us bring great programs to you every week, and we look forward to continuing to do that. And if you're enjoying the program on YouTube, there's another way you can support the show. Just go to the description. You'll see a link to a Patreon page. It's Joha, J-O-H-A-W. And if you go to the Patreon page, you'll be able to pledge an amount to help support the show as well. Once again, thanks for your support. Thank you for listening. Please share it with your friends. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So it was 51 years ago, this very day, January 9th, that the original Star Trek series ceased or final, finished its uh, final day of filming on its final episode. And uh, it was, I guess, mothballed at that point. It was uh, had, had been destined to be um, canceled at that point. However... That's only part of the story because what it really ended up doing was launching a whole universe of fans, films, and other television shows that have really uh, not only changed the course of science fiction um, entertainment, but really pop culture in general. And tonight our guests are going to be talking about this. Mark Cushman and Vic Mignona um, are both involved in a book called These Are the Voyages, and it's several books, in fact, several volumes. Mark is the author. Vic has voiced the audiobook version of These Are the Voyages. Plus, Vic was involved as a producer and an actor in a web series called Star Trek Continues. So, gentlemen, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's so great to have you here. This is a really exciting uh, conversation for us tonight. Oh, thank you, JV. So um, there's so much to talk about, and this is it's fun for me because, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs and, you know, this kind of stuff that's really hard to put your finger on. But we have real, uh, I guess, quantifiable data to talk about how impactful three seasons of a what would be considered um, kind of a, a fringe television show uh, how much it affected American pop culture and still affects it today. But the first thing I want to know is, in your opinion, and and let's start with you, Mark, how important do you think that original Star Trek series was um, 
and, and the course of television in general, but per, particularly sci-fi type television? I think it's the most important series that ever was made. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think it was last week Time Magazine had it on the cover. Uh, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and a couple of the others from the original series taken at the time of the original series and called it the most, on the cover, called it the most influential television series ever. And I agree with that. Uh, not just for what it did for TV, but what you're talking about, JV, is, is also the technology that came out of Star Trek because the kids watching the show went on to invent things like the cell phone and the PC and the Internet and automatic sliding doors and the MRI and uh, the Bluetooth, which you saw in Spock's ear and your her's ear. And so, so much technology came out that even if somebody says, well, I never watched the original show, I'm not a fan, their life has been impacted by that show. And also the uh, interracial cast and uh, another show that was being made at the same time, I Spy, pretty much opened the door to interracial casting on television in non-stereotypical roles. So it's, it's really had an influence beyond that, but it really got science fiction going in, in high gear. Uh, before Star Trek, um, the average science fiction book, and I'm talking about books by Heinlein and uh, Sturgeon and people like that, would sell about 60,000 copies. But when they started adapting the Star Trek scripts into paperback and doing Star Trek books beyond that, they were looking at 600,000-plus copies per, per book. Wow. Wow. Uh, that was my dog yeah. trying to get in on the show. <laughs> They're doing a good job. Uh, Vic, you know, as, as somebody who not only uh, became a fan of Star Trek, um, but you actually... Uh, ended up in a career that allowed you to participate directly as well as an actor and a producer. When did it show up on your radar? Well, I was about nine years old when I discovered the original series. It had just gone into syndication. Uh, my parents had just divorced, and my mom and I moved into a little apartment, and we had a little black-and-white 19-inch television, and, uh, and I found this show, and it inspired me. JV, I, I can't think of any other word except as a little boy, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was so inspired by that show to try all kinds of things that I had never done before, like acting. I, I started going and auditioning for school plays because I, I wanted to do what Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy were doing. I wanted to move people the way their stories moved me. And then I would start making little home movies, and I would make my own uniforms and, and hang models in front of black poster board and, <laughs> and, uh, and shoot little Star Trek episodes. And uh, I, I like to tell people that, that Star Trek inspired me to try for the first time the things that I do now professionally and have been doing for, for decades. And about seven years ago... I decided that I wanted to bring together my lifelong love of Star Trek with all of the skills that I had developed over the years in production, acting, writing, directing, editing, sound design, music, all of it. And I brought together a bunch of wonderful, talented people, and we made a, a web series called Star Trek Continues. We, we recreated the entire soundstage to spot-on accuracy, and we started shooting episodes that that now have over 10 million viewers. Um, I'm the executive producer and play, got to fulfill my childhood dream of playing Captain Kirk. 
and uh, we made episodes as if this show had not been canceled. You remember at the beginning, Kirk used to say at the beginning of every episode, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, its five-year mission. That's right. Well, they were canceled in their third television season. And then the next time you saw those characters was 10 years later in Star Trek The Motion Picture. And by that point, Kirk had become an admiral, and he took a desk job, and Spock had gone back to Vulcan. Everybody had kind of gone their own separate ways. So my idea was, let's pick up right where the original series was canceled and finish. Like, we made 11 full-length episodes. Mark even uh, wrote one of our scripts. And, uh, and our, our series finishes the five-year mission, and it leaves everyone right where they were when the motion picture picks them up. It's a perfect filler for those years in between the cancellation of the original series and the motion picture. We're definitely going to talk a little bit more about Star Trek Continues as well as our conversation goes on. But, Vic, I want to ask about this particular three seasons of a television show. Was Star Trek, the original series, simply ahead of its time? And I'm not talking about from a technological standpoint. I know that's a very important part of it. But, I mean, just from a television standpoint. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I mean, back, back in the day when Star Trek was, was, uh, was aired, most television shows were police shows or westerns or sitcoms. Um, there, there wasn't a ton of really innovative, fresh, new ideas. In fact, Mark can tell you from his research on the books that Lucille Ball and her production company, uh, Desilu, Lucy's admonition, her challenge to her, to her people was, find me something different. Find me something new. Find me something that, that, you know, that breaks the mold. And they brought her Star Trek. And uh, they also brought her Mission Impossible. And these were two shows that were, that were uh, you know, they're just unlike anything that had been done. And I know if you read the books, and Mark can comment on this as well, Star Trek, making the original series of Star Trek was a daily JV. Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman and the writers and the producers of that show were in a daily battle with NBC, with broadcast standards and practices, with all kinds of things to get that show made. And I think one of the reasons was it was breaking so many molds, and it was outside a lot of people's comfort zones. And, uh, and I think that's also one of the reasons that it's so relevant even today. Mark, your, your opinion on how Star Trek was ahead of its time. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had done a show before Star Trek called The Lieutenant on NBC, a uh, one-hour drama uh, about uh, Camp Pendleton, peacetime in the Marines, and he was doing, trying to do controversial episodes. And he did one called uh, To Set It Right, which was about racism in the military. And NBC uh, didn't want to air that episode. Uh, and they were forced to air it because he took it to special interest groups and a big uproar took place. So they aired the episode and they canceled the show. And Gene decided he wanted to be a modern-day Jonathan Swift. He wanted to tell stories that you weren't supposed to tell, and he wanted to do it on television. And uh, so he knew the only way to talk about Vietnam, racism, religion, sexism, uh, everything else was to do it on other planets, 
with aliens. And then he could make commentary on what was happening on Earth in the 20th century, in 1960s, and, uh, and get away with it. And he didn't really get away with it, because that's the battles Vic was talking about that, that you see in these books with the memos between him and his staff and NBC fighting almost from almost every story uh, to try to get these shows on the air. Overpopulation, you just, you can't, everything that you can imagine they were doing. And uh, so it really uh, broke through the barriers and, uh, and jump-started science fiction and got it to a much broader audience uh, and, and talked about these controversial subjects that television hadn't touched before then. Back then in the 60s, only the news division was allowed to talk about these subjects in prime time. Entertainment shows didn't, and Star Trek was the first to do that. And it was important to Gene that every episode had a strong theme, a central theme, and had a message. And so that's why the shows are still relevant to this day. And uh, as far as science fiction is concerned, all those scripts went over to NASA, the RAND Corporation, uh, Kelly Research, uh, DeForest Kelly Research, and not DeForest, <laughs> um, uh, uh, it was a different organization, not... Thank you so much. And, and, uh, and so they, they were technically accurate. What Gene told all the scientists, and they were fans of the show too, was I'm not asking everything be probable, but I want everything we do on the show to be possible 250 years from now. And so they went through these scripts and made them to where you could believe what you were seeing. And it still holds up to this day. I, uh, I think I may have been uh, misquoted, but uh, was... The show on CBS or NBC? NBC. It was on NBC. Yeah. And um, there's some, I've heard conflicting numbers. If you go to IMDb, it says 80 episodes, but I've heard 82 or 80 more. 79. Than, 79, okay. Seven, and if you count the pilot, the first pilot, it's 80. Okay. Yeah. So that's where the numbers come from. So when, when, the, when the show aired, when the pilot aired, how was it received? And, and was there any uh, backlash or applause? What was the public's uh, thoughts on the program when it aired? Well, the pilot, when NBC screened it, it got a standing ovation from all the executives. They'd oh, never wow. seen anything. But then they didn't buy it. Uh, as a series, they ordered a second pilot, which had never been done before. They thought, they thought the first pilot was too cerebral. So the second one, where no man has gone before, and that's when they brought in William Shatner, uh, that was more action-adventure-oriented. And so the audience was very much behind it. There's a lot of folklore about Star Trek. Uh, to this day, everybody says, well, the ratings weren't good when it was on NBC. It's not true. When we did my book series, we licensed all the Nielsen ratings from A.C. Nielsen for every episode. And Star Trek, uh, the first year was in th on Thursday nights from 8.30 to 9.30. It was NBC's top-rated show. Quite often won its time slot. But the network tried to cancel it because of the fights they were having with Gene Roddenberry. They moved it to Friday nights. It was their top-rated Friday night show. The ratings came down quite a bit. It's not a good night for a show like Star Trek, but it was still their strongest show of the night. They tried to cancel it again. They got over a million letters uh, in protest and people actually marching on NBC Rockefeller Plaza, wow. NBC Burbank. So they picked it up for a third year and they stuck it in the death slot Friday nights from 10 to 11. And the opening episode, Spock's Brain, won its time slot. Uh, the ratings came down during that third year, but it had done very well on the network. So it wasn't really about the ratings, and you can see that in the books with all the reports that we got from A.C. Nielsen. Uh, it was all about, uh, and you can see the memos and the fights, it was all about the stories that they were trying to tell. 
And so, in that last uh, season, they cut the budget as well, JV. So they were they were really doing everything they could possibly do to kill it, you know. And and yet Star Trek kept making great episodes, even with even with cut budgets and bad time slots. I just have to share a personal anecdote with you. Um, you know, when when Star Trek hit syndication, and you were referencing this, Vic. Um, and I remember coming home from school, being tired, and my mother would be watching it on our little black and white television. And I, I would curl up next to her. Generally, I would fall asleep because I couldn't really understand it. But the colors of the way the, the, the show was shot and how vivid the colors were and the theme song um, used to almost lull me to sleep into a nap or whatever. And I still, when I hear that theme song, I still go back to a place that is more comforting than anything else I've felt ever since. Oh, I love it. You know what? We get hundreds and hundreds of letters uh, at Star Trek Continues, and one of the most wonderful and endearing comments that we have heard hundreds and hundreds of times is, um, I watch your show, and I feel like I'm 10 years old again watching Star Trek with my dad. And I, I just, I mean, you know, you, you can't you can't ask for a more wonderful endorsement yeah. than that. Yeah. Take Ma- people back to that to that time. Mark, how did this concept develop? Uh, I, you mentioned Gene Ronberry looking for a project that he could uh, use as a social uh, vehicle in a way. But apart from that, how did the nuts and bolts of this come together? Well, Gene uh, had a lot of friends who were scientists at JPL and NASA, and he was fascinated with all that stuff, with UFOs, with uh, space travel, with the possibilities of what's out there, what has maybe visited us, and so forth. And uh, so he did a mathematical uh, calculation through the scientists that if you only figure that uh, one out of every million planets out there in the solar system can support life, and if only one out of every million of those has intelligent life, uh, that you would still have millions and millions of planets. And he saw all those as potential stories. So he pitched it to NBC as Wagon Train to the Stars. Wagon Train was a uh, number one show at that time uh, on NBC. And, uh, and every, every week they would go to a new town or they would go to a new frontier uh, and, and so forth and, and have guest stars on the show. And so he said, we can do this in outer space. And that's what hooked NBC's attention. Lucille Ball, as Vic was talking about, was looking much further than that. She wanted something fresh and different. But she also told her executives, find me something that can rerun as long as as I Love Lucy has. And to this day, Star Trek, the original, and I Love Lucy are the two most rerun shows in the history of television. Well, that's amazing. You know, it's interesting to also note that... um, it only ran three seasons, and it, yet it it spawned such a, a universe. Do you think its limited run and its initial uh, incantation was or incarnation was um, was partly responsible for the the mystique it created and therefore the success ultimately? Yes, it, it because it left us wanting more. You know, you, you always want to leave them wanting more, and and we certainly had that with Star Trek. And when it went into uh, reruns, when you found it and when Vic found it in the 1970s uh, in syndication, uh, it was, again, winning its time slot. It was beating brand-new network TV shows. And and that's why they wanted to get it back on the air. Uh, NBC tried to get Star Trek back two years after they canceled it. Uh, but Paramount had scrapped all the sets. They had donated the 12-foot uh, miniature 
model of the enterprise to the Smithsonian Institute. And they said it's going to cost a fortune to get the show back on now. And so they wanted a two-year commitment. And NBC was too nervous to do a two-year commitment. So it just languished for a while until they did Star Trek, the motion picture. But it, it, it built up this anticipation. And, uh, and if anybody listening was a teenager or in their 20s during the 1970s, they remember that the show was so popular five nights a week in every city across the country, 180 cities, more, more stations than NBC had affiliates. And so everybody wanted this show back. We just were hungry for more Star Trek. You know, it's interesting because I, I don't remember exactly how many seasons, but I think the original Batman television series with Adam West was like three, maybe four seasons, right? So, and it kind of developed a similar mystique, maybe not quite as big, but certainly uh, that, that uh, want, leaving, leave them wanting more theory applies there as well, I think. Yeah, it lasted three years as well, uh, 1966 through 69, or 65, I think, through uh, 68. And, uh, uh, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, we didn't get enough, and we wanted more. So it's, it, But, you know, that, that was the lifespan of most shows back then, because they made a lot more episodes per season. Right. So you could get 80 episodes in three years. Where now, what would you get? You would get maybe uh, 40 episodes at the most. So there was enough product to go into syndication, and that kept everybody interested. Mark, the book is several volumes, right? Yes. Uh, there's uh, three volumes uh, devoted to the original series because it had uh, three seasons. So we have a book for each uh, season, and these are 700-page books. Wow. Uh, you have a chapter, 15-, 20-page chapter for every episode. And the reason they're so big and there's so much, it was going to be one book. Uh, but Gene Roddenberry uh, opened up all of his private files to us and the show files and, uh, and, uh, and just a treasure trove of memos uh, for every episode and, and also for episodes they didn't make. They wrote scripts, but they didn't make them because either they were going to be too expensive or NBC wouldn't accept them uh, because they were too hot as far as topics were concerned. So I had all the memos. So what you get to do with these books is it's like you're sitting in a room listening to Gene Roddenberry and his co-producers, Robert Justman, John D.F. Black, his story editor, uh, D.C. Fontana, uh, Stan Robertson from NBC, discussing, quite often arguing over every episode, uh, them against NBC. And so you get to see the, the battles, and you get to see the passion, and you get to see why they would fight for these stories, why it was important to get this story on the air, in their own words, from the time when they were doing them. And season one was just released as an audiobook that Vic yes. that Vic has uh, narrated, correct? Right. You know, now you get to hear it, not just read about it, but hear it. And what I did, uh, JV, was I I decided that rather than just read the whole book by myself, you know, most audiobooks are just one guy reading all of the characters. But as I as I started to uh, to kind of strategize how I was going to do uh, Mark's book. Uh, at least season one, um, there were hundreds of people involved. And I thought, you know, it would be so much more fun to listen to if I brought in a bunch of actors and uh, technicians, people that worked on my series, and have them voice their, their, uh, their position. For instance, Jerry Finnerman was the director of photography uh, on the original series, and I had Jerry Finnerman's uh, excerpts and quotes voiced by Matt Busey, who was the director of photography for my show. But in many cases, 
some of the original people were still around, and I brought them in to actually record their own quotations. Uh, Dorothy Fontana, uh, Joe D'Augusta, the casting director, Clint Howard, who played a character, uh, Ron Howard's brother, who played a character in one of the original series episodes. Um, uh, that kind of uh, people that were actually there, Bobby Clark, who was the Gorn. Uh, and then in some cases, like Leonard Nimoy had passed, but his son Adam voices his father's excerpts. And uh, Chris Dewan voices his dad, uh, Scotty's excerpts. It's, a, it's an amazing book, uh, audiobook. And you feel like, when you're listening to it, you feel like you're sitting in a room with Gene Roddenberry or Dorothy Fontana, or Bill Shatner, or George Takei, or the writers, or the critics, or the NBC reps, and they are telling you first person about you know their, their own particular thoughts and feelings. Vic, as you were uh, wrangling these folks to, on this project to have them contribute to the audiobook, you must have had some casual conversations with them. How do they feel about the fact that I think the Star Trek uh, universe and the Star Trek original series is probably more popular now than ever. There must be a sense of satisfaction among those folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there are, there are a lot of television shows and movies out there that, that actors are a part of, and they come and go. And you could literally live your entire life as a successful actor or writer or producer and still never have the privilege to be a part of something as iconic as Star Trek. So, you know, uh, Dorothy Fontana, for instance, uh, she, she wrote under the name DC Fontana and she wrote for all kinds of, of different television series. And yet the one that people know her for and will always know her for is her contribution to Star Trek. It was a, a special, uh, lightning in a bottle, so to speak, you know, the, the, the perfect people were brought together at the perfect time and place to make something that that transcended uh, most other television shows. Mark, in this whole process of creating the original Star Trek series, uh, I don't think you can you can say one person is more important than another because it was this, the, you know, the, the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. But um, William Shatner, obviously very, very integral in, in that cast. How did Shatner become involved? They wanted him from the, the beginning. Uh, when Gene created the show, uh, they thought Bill Shatner would be the perfect captain. But he was doing another series called For the People, where he played a DA, and it was on CBS. Uh, so they went with uh, Jeffrey Hunter, who was a well-known movie star, and uh, they put him in as Captain Christopher Pike, and they did that first pilot that NBC rejected, applauded, and then rejected for being too cerebral. And uh, and when they ordered the second pilot, uh, Jeffrey Hunter was offered a movie, and his contract was if the pilot sold, he was under contract to do five seasons, the five-year mission. And uh, But he had this movie offer, and since the pilot didn't sell, he took off. Well, right at that moment, For the People got canceled. And so Gene called William Shatner and said, we made this pilot, and we're going to do another one. Do you want to play the captain? Come on out, and I'll show you the, the first pilot. Shatner saw it, loved it, but he said, you know, the captain's not dynamic enough. He's, he's, he doesn't have the energy, the drive, uh, the faults. 
he's not a, a failed hero, which I think he should be. And, and Roddenberry said, that's exactly what I want him to be. And so uh, they collaborated on that, and, and Shatner brought in his perspective and his energy and became the perfect Captain Kirk. And I don't think in any of the sequels they've ever had a captain who could lead the charge like Bill Shatner did. Yeah. Until, so, until Vic Mignogna on Star Trek <laughs> Continue. I was just going to ask Vic, how does it feel to step into those shoes? I'll tell you what, you want to talk about daunting, JV. Um, imagine if you spent your entire life dreaming of something that you knew you would never get to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be like saying, uh, man, I would love to fly an F-15. Well, I know I'm never going to get to fly an F-15. So you can fantasize about something like that all you want. And I know that there are hundreds of thousands of guys like me that when they were young, they imagined being Captain Kirk. And yeah. They maybe put on uniforms and ran around with their friends in the neighborhood and and maybe made little home movies or played Star Trek just like I did. And you fast forward four decades and, you know, we built these sets. We had perfect costumes on perfect sets. All of these amazing artists and technicians and actors all came together. And suddenly I was standing behind the, the turbo lift door getting ready to walk onto the bridge standing there in uniform. Chris Dewan is standing beside me playing his father's role, and we were waiting for them to call action, and I was just flooded with this feeling of, oh my gosh, now I have to actually do it. Uh, this thing that I never imagined I would get to do, I get the chance to do, but I hope I can do it justice, because I love Bill Shatner. I love the original series, and, and Captain Kirk in particular. So my greatest goal was to pay tribute and, uh, and proper homage to Shatner and the character that he created that I loved so much. And so I poured every ounce of energy I could into making people feel like they were watching a continuation of the series. Have, you, the met, have, you, have you met uh, Bill Shatner? And if so, did he comment on your character? Well, not only have I met Bill, but he and I are friends. Oh, nice. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a voice actor by trade. I've done about 300 different animated series and video games. Um, I've done a lot of voice acting over the years, worked on a lot of popular series like Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and Full Metal Alchemist and Digimon. And um, Because of my voice work, I do a lot of uh, Comic-Cons and pop culture conventions. Well... As luck would have it, I ended up being represented by the same event manager that represents Bill. And so he would book Bill and I into the same events often, and I've had the chance to travel with Bill, to do several events with Bill. We've had dinners together. We've, we've been to several uh, conventions, uh, shared rides and chatted in green rooms and spent a lot of time chatting with him. And uh, I never even talked about Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted, you know, I wanted him to just know me as a fellow actor that's at the show signing autographs, just like he is. Right. Um, I didn't want to be just, you know, some crazy fanboy. And so for years, I never even spoke the words Star Trek. But over the course of time, JV, a lot of fans brought it to Bill's attention through his Twitter and his social media. They started telling him about Star Trek Continues. And when he and I finally spoke about it, 
I put my arm around his shoulder and I said, I made this for you, Bill. We made this to say thank you and to pay tribute to you and the others and what the, the beautiful thing that you gave us. And he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, thank you, Vic. That's extraordinary. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I've, I have had the privilege to, to spend time with him and uh, love him to death. Mark, as you talked to these folks and, and got to know them and wrote about them, what's your sense? Um, was, there, was there a point where they felt as though they were shortchanged? No, um, I mean, Gene had a very rough relationship with NBC, and there was a lot of bitterness there. Uh, But everybody else uh, loved the experience of doing Star Trek, and they would have loved it if it had continued a few more years, and they had uh, achieved that five-year mission, uh, five full seasons. Uh, But they were, uh, Shatner and Nimoy were in big demand, uh, all the writers, of course, had done work before Star Trek and did lots of work after it, and the directors and the production people and so forth. And just to have been part of something like that meant a lot to all of them. As they saw it grow and continue to grow and then start spawning uh, sequels and so forth, and then they were all brought back together for the, the movies, and they ended up doing six or seven of those uh, with the original cast. So, um, you know, Gene had bitterness with NBC because they treated him very badly. And Paramount treated him very, very, very badly, even when they were doing the movies. Uh, and you see those in the books, too. I've actually done um, two more of these are the Voyages books that deal with the 1970s, with the return of Star Trek, the animated series, the aborted Phase Two series, which almost got made, and then the start of the motion pictures. And again, you see in, in these memos between Gene and Paramount just the disrespect they're giving him. They, they know it's a hot property. They want more, but they don't want to deal with him. And because uh, he had a reputation for fighting with NBC, so it's it's really you you go through this and your heart goes out to him because of just the wall that he's always facing, and the climb that he always has to do to bring Star Trek back and to do it properly. So that that's where the the, the bitterness is is on that end. Was Roddenberry a tough person in general, or was he just uh, passionate about that particular project? He was passionate about the project, but uh, if you know Gene Roddenberry's background, and it's all in the books as well, uh, is uh, he was a, uh, a bomber pilot in World War II, stationed in the Philippines. So he saw war. Uh, he lost members of his crew that were killed. He was then a commercial pilot for uh, uh, Pan Am after, after the war, and then he became a police officer in Los Angeles and rose to the rank of sergeant uh, before he started writing for television. And what got him into TV was Dragnet, uh, wanted true stories out of, out of the files of the Los Angeles Police Department. And because he was interested in writing, uh, the, the department assigned him to give stories to Jack Webb. And that led to him then becoming a TV writer and getting to Star Trek and so forth. So what NBC wasn't prepared for was here's a guy who had led men into war. Here's a guy who was a sergeant on the police department. He wasn't going to be pushed around by the network. And he had his agenda, his mission, his vision, and he was not going to be an Irwin Allen. He was going to do the stories he wanted to do and not do what the network wanted. And that led to the battles. So he, he, Gene was I, – I love Gene. I thought he was a terrific guy. I got along great with him. I, I worked with him on Star Trek Continues uh, – not Continues, I'm sorry, Vic, on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation – pitched uh, stories to him and so forth, and, uh, and I thought he was a fabulous producer. Uh, but the networks didn't care for him. 
I uh, remember vividly one of my good friends in high school who was a real Star Trek fanatic. I had a casual uh, liking, but I wasn't quite as fanatic as, as some folks. But I remember him coming uh, back to school from Christmas one year with this, uh, basically an encyclopedia of uh, Star Trek tech manuals. Where where they yep. had the Enterprise broken down into, I mean, every bit of technical knowledge about this particular ship. Was was it really that detailed? Yes, because, again, uh, you know, Gene was getting uh, input from people at NASA. And, uh, and he had a brilliant uh, uh, set designer, uh, Matt Jeffries, who designed the Enterprise inside and out and designed all the planets that they, they visited and so forth. And uh, Gene wanted it uh, detail-oriented. I mean, this is a former military man, and so was Matt Jeffries. And, and so uh, they, they did everything, uh, including where the bathrooms were and how the bathrooms worked. You never saw that on TV, but it was all in those blueprints, wow. which you're talking about, uh, the book series that came out where they printed all the, uh, published all the blueprints. Yeah. And you could see everything that made that ship work and go forward, and where all the compartments were, and where all the decks were, and the rooms, and the, the, the quarters, and so forth. So it, uh, they, they went into extraordinary detail uh, that you didn't see those designs on the TV show, but you certainly felt the impact of them. All right, we're good. we have to go to break here in just a minute, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation. But, Mark, um, the, the books series, the volumes, the, the audiobook, where can everything be purchased? Uh, you can get them anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, but the best place to go is to the publisher. And, and they got a website called theseofthevoyagesbooks.com, because if you buy from the publisher, you get, uh, they could autograph, you can get them personalized, you can get the audio book there and download it to your mobile device, and it's 28 hours long. So if you have uh, truck drivers or people <laughs> who are traveling the country and they want a, a nice long thing to listen to as they're driving and hear the whole story of Star Trek, they can get it there. These are the voyagesbooks.com. Mark, let's talk about Leonard Nimoy a bit. And he's a particularly interesting character to our audience because often when we talk about these paranormal topics, his narration of the television show In Search Of comes up yep. all yeah. of the time. He seemed like the perfect person to do that. Um, but prior to that, he was, uh, he was known as Spock on Star Trek. How did he get involved? Well, Leonard, uh, all of the cast uh, were pretty busy. Uh, in the 60s before Star Trek came on in the late 50s. And Leonard was in a lot of uh, television shows. He worked uh, quite a bit and uh, worked as a producer as well uh, on uh, for stage plays. And uh, so he was a guest star on Roddenberry's uh, series, The Lieutenant. And when Roddenberry was doing, uh, getting ready to do Star Trek, uh, you know, he uh, had dinner uh, with Gary Lockwood, who was the star of uh, The Lieutenant, and he was also in the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before, for Star Trek, and your audience knows Gary from 2001, A Space Odyssey, sure. and so forth. Uh, and they were, they were out on uh, the balcony at Gene's house in Bel Air, and uh, Gene was saying, you know, there was a guy who was uh, uh, on the show that I think would be perfect as Spock, and I'm trying to think of who he was. And Gary Lockwood says, yeah, yeah, no, I know that guy. That, that, he was great, because he kind of has an alien look to him, and he's very smart. Uh, and that comes across as well. And they sat there, and they were trying to think of who it was, and Gary Lockwood turned to uh, Roddenberry at one point and said, Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy. And he says, yeah. And so they brought him in, and from that point on, they knew it was going to be Spock. He was in the first pilot. 
And uh, so that was the guy they wanted all along. Now, the network didn't want him. The network wanted Martin Landau. So they offered the role to Martin Landau, and he turned it down because he thought it would be too limiting. And he went on to be uh, in Mission Impossible playing the Master of Disguise. Coincidentally, when Martin Landau left Mission Impossible and Star Trek got canceled, they hired Nimoy to come over and, and play that character, not the same character, but that role. Uh, on Mission Impossible for a couple years. So uh, Martin Landau was offered Spock, didn't get it, and Nimoy got it, and then Nimoy took uh, Martin Landau's place on Mission Impossible. That's interesting. And then Martin Landau actually went on to to do Space 1999. Right. So so apparently he he didn't escape the... uh, the pull of the space series after all. It's interesting because, as you mentioned, all of these actors and actresses, um, every time you mention a name, I think of a Twilight Zone episode as well. Was there any connection between Roddenberry and Twilight Zone or Star Trek and Twilight Zone, or is it just that that was kind of the path a lot of these actors followed? It was the path. Uh, Shatner did a couple Twilight Zones, and he did an Outer Limits, and uh, Leonard Nimoy did an Outer Limits right before Star Trek as well. Uh, you know, they were making the rounds. And uh, Roddenberry knew um, Rod Serling, and they respected each other. And Rod Serling was trying to be a Jonathan Swift on television, too. But he had more of a cynical outlook on television. And that's why most of the stuff in Twilight Zone is darker, and mankind looks uh, more flawed, where Gene Roddenberry wanted to be more optimistic Uh, He thought the only way we're going to survive is if we learn to come together and get rid of our petty differences. And uh, so, you know, and and Gene really felt that, uh, and I I think it's true, that Star Trek Trek helped save the Earth in many ways (laughs) because it brought out such positive themes that uh, during a time when it seemed like everything was coming apart and we were facing nuclear war and so forth, I think it helped inspire a generation to try to work towards peace, work towards scientific uh, evolution and things of that nature. So television can influence people. It's a very strong influence on society. Vic, when did the concept for Star Trek Continues uh, come about, and uh, when did you start filming that project? Well, um, for several years, uh, about 12, 10 or 12 years ago, I, uh, I found out that there were a lot of other fan productions out there people that loved Star Trek the way I did, and they wanted to, to make some kind of a, an, a fan homage to it. And I actually even helped some of them with some of their productions. But every time I did, I felt like it could be done so much better. You know, um, a lot of people always make jokes about fan, about fan productions and fan films that they're kind of hard to watch, you know, and, and uh, you know, that, 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 they're not good actors and the stories are kind of lame and they're not shot well. And, um, and so I, I, I worked on these other productions and I thought, you know, all of the years that I've spent developing skills in like my college degree was in film and have been acting since I was very young and had learned all of these different uh, disciplines related to, to film production. And I thought, you know, I would love to make an episode um, and bring all of these, all of the, the experience that I've that I've spent over the years developing, and try to make the best Star Trek episode I can make. Something very story driven, something with a, a theme and a, a moral, the way that the original series had. So we, so I got a bunch of my friends together, 
uh, Lisa Hansel, uh, Matt Busey, um, Ralph Miller, James Kerwin, a lot of friends. And all of these people were Star Trek fans, but they were also very gifted artists and technicians. And we made one episode, and it was actually a sequel to an original series episode. And we had the same actor from the original episode 40 years, 50 years later, reprise his role. And we made this episode, released it, having no idea whether people would enjoy it or not. And it was very, very well received. And so we went on to uh, to make 10 more full-length episodes, every one better than the last. And... Uh, and I, I'm just so enormously proud of the team that made Star Trek Continues. You must and, be. You know, if I may add also, sure. um, so because I know Vic won't say it, but, I, but I'll say it for him, is uh, Star Trek Continues has won a lot of awards, best web series, uh, writing, directing, uh, so forth, and, uh, and a lot of the people from the original Star Trek uh, came in and uh, uh, contributed. Matter of fact, um, I, I, besides writing an episode, I, I helped out for a while as a, a story as editor or a script consultant, reading the scripts and giving notes. Uh, since I've lived in Gene Roddenberry's memos and Bob Justman's memos and uh, John D. F. Black's memos, Dorothy Fontana, so I'd read the scripts and I would give them notes that I thought Gene Roddenberry would give them for these things. And I called up John D. F. Black, who was uh, the story editor on the first season of the original Star Trek and the associate producer, and he wrote an incredible episode called The Naked Time, which won a Hugo Award. And uh, and he came in and, and uh, gave notes on some of the scripts for uh, Star Trek Continues as well. So, you know, Vic did everything right, uh, and he brought the best people out. And, and he mentioned Chris Duhan uh, picking up for James, his dad, James Duhan, and playing Scotty. Chris looks like James Duhan. It sounds like <laughs> James Duhan. I mean, you look at it, the first episode I watched of this show, you know, it was like they had cloned Scotty. Uh, so it, it's really, you know, the, the champagne is chilled just perfectly. Uh, the show is, is terrific, and I think it's the best uh, spinoff of the original Star Trek ever made, better than Discovery, better than Voyager, better than Enterprise and Next Generation. Uh, I, I think it's uh, pound for pound, story for story, actor for actor. It's the best they've done. And one last thing, uh, uh, of, of, among his people, they brought in Doug Drexler, to shoot the Enterprise and do these uh, optical effects. Doug Drexler has won Emmys and Oscars for working on Next Generation and the other Star Trek series and the Star Trek movies and so forth. So that's the caliber of talent you're, you're getting, and it, it comes through on the screen. If I, if I, may, yeah, if I may add to that, J.V., real quick, thank you, Mark, by the way. Thank you. That was very, very kind of you. Um, we've had guest stars from almost every iconic uh, series as well in our episodes. We've had guest stars from Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Who, Buffy, Farscape, The Expanse. We've had all kinds of great, the Incredible Hulk. We've had uh, we've had guest stars from all these different other properties, and uh, and it's and by the way, it's all free. That's probably the best news of all for your listeners and you. Um, we can't make money from somebody else's property, but that's not why we made Star Trek Continues. We didn't make it to profit from it. We made it to say thank you to the original series and the people that created it. So all of the episodes are free to watch at StarTrekContinues.com. 
That was my next question. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Roddenberry's uh, social commentary that is kind of woven throughout all of the episodes of the original Star Trek. Um, there's quite a, uh, a tick list, if you will, of things that he broached, and he kind of did it in a kind of a masqueraded way because when you're talking about aliens and other planets, you don't, you know, the message isn't necessarily clobbering you over the head, but it's still there. Tell us a little bit about some of the topics that he for the late 60s uh, touched, kind of the third rail topics? Well, uh, I'll, I'll mention just a couple episodes, and I'm sure Vic can jump in and, and offer a few that I might not remember or think of right at the moment. But uh, there was an episode in the third season of the original Star Trek called Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. And a lot of your listeners will remember this when I describe it. Uh, the characters that they come across, these aliens, are half white and half black. But they're, they're still going through racial strife because, as Frank Gorshin, who plays one of the characters, says, he keeps referring to the other guy as his kind. And Kirk, at one point, says, you, you keep calling him his kind. He's just like you. And Frank Gorshin's character looks at William Shatner and says, are you blind? Hmm. All of his people are black on the right side. <laughs> My people are white on the right side. And, and so it was just a brilliant commentary on racial prejudice. Uh, they, they, they did stories about uh, religion, they did stories about sexism, they did stories about Vietnam. They did an episode called A Private Little War, where they, they basically, uh, a Vietnam-type conflict was happening on another planet. And Kirk, uh, for the Federation, started arming one side, and the Klingons started arming the other side and giving them more advanced weapons. And McCoy was jumping down Kirk's throat and even made mention of, remember the brush wars in 20th century Earth? And they would go on year after year. And a balance of power doesn't work. And Kirk said, no, a balance of power is the only thing that's going to keep them from destroying themselves. And so they were having these debates and these arguments on Star Trek as mm -hmm. Vietnam was taking place. Vic, did you want to add? Uh, he he picked a couple of the big ones, but I mean, of course, you know the all, all of uh, you know not even just social issues, but ethical and and moral questions, you know, um, that were just so beautifully and poignantly uh, acted out and and executed in these series, and that's why I think, like we talked about earlier, that's why we're still talking about Star Trek yeah. fifty some years later, because. Yeah. These stories were about the human condition. They weren't necessarily sci-fi stories. They just happened to take place in outer space in the future. But the stories were very human stories um, and uh, about ethical questions and moral quandaries and social issues. And all of these things are just as relevant today as they ever were. Mark, do you think any of the putting the Star Trek continues aside? clearly in a class by itself. But do you think any of the other uh, television spinoffs captured the same kind of magic? No. Uh, they, they all have good episodes, and they all have wonderful moments. But I, I don't think they have the strength of the original Star Trek uh, because, uh, first of all, you mentioned it, uh, J.V., about the cast. I mean, how, how can you beat William Shatner right. and Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly? And and as far as the writers, uh, you know, and I have a lot of friends who've written for those shows, and I wrote as well. But but how do you beat DC Fontana and Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry? Uh, you know, it, it's just as, it's, it's a magical thing like the Beatles. You know, you pull 
Paul McCartney or John Lennon or George Harrison out of the Beatles, and it wouldn't have been the same dynamic. It wouldn't have had the same impact. It's just this this thing that is hard to explain, almost as if if aliens are manipulating something and, and getting these people to meet each other and come together for this thing. And uh, and that's what happened with the original Star Trek. It was just magical. And so I don't think you can beat it. But the other thing is it had conflict between the characters. They were not perfect. They They would argue... They they would disagree on things. Kirk, uh, if you challenged him, he would throw you off his bridge. And you didn't really see uh, those type of characters in the other shows to that degree. And and so uh, drama is based on conflict. And drama is based on strong central themes. And the original series had it hands down. Vic, you mentioned Comic-Cons. And I know that William Shatner, I actually uh, produced a... Not a Comic-Con, it's more of a horror convention for many years. So I'm familiar with how this stuff works behind the scenes a little bit. And William Shatner is at the top. He's he's the he's the top of the A-list when it comes to Comic-Con-type guests. But uh, some of the other cast members, George Takei um, and others, uh, are also at the top of the list. How is it that actors from a television show from the late 60s that lasted three seasons still command that kind of attention? Well, uh, for all the reasons that that we've been talking about, and uh, you know, not only if you if you think about it, I, I'm sure you know this, but the original series is still on television. That's right. Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's on Netflix yep. right now. Yep. And you know what? I just found out three days ago. I was looking for something on Hulu. It's on Hulu as well. Wow. And I mean, uh, my entire life growing up. It was, it was, you could find it on television all the time somewhere, which means that how many generations now have grown up with this show? Parents show their kids, their kids fall in love with it, and then uh, they tell their kids, and then, and then new Star Trek comes out, and, and it, not only do you have all of the nostalgia of the older fans, but but there are younger fans that are just now discovering it. And, uh, and, and so I think that's one of the reasons people love to come and see them at, the, at these Comic-Cons still. Yeah. And, and, J.V., I can illustrate that point from personal experience. Uh, when I was working on these books, and I started working on them, uh, oh, right around 2010, 11, 12, 13, uh, doing them, the first one came out in late 2013 and one a year after that, um, uh, the, the movies started coming out with Chris Pine, uh, the new Star Trek movies with J. from J.J. Abrams. And my son at that time was, uh, I think, about 16 or 17. And, uh, and I was in my office working on this book. He knew I had done some work for uh, Next Generation and so forth. And, and so he came into my office and he said, Hey, Dad, I've been watching, because he saw the movie with Chris Pine, the first one. And he said, I've been watching the original Star Trek. It's on five nights a week on this channel at, right after Next Generation, five nights a week. And, and I said, yeah, what do you think? And he says, I like it. I, 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 it you know, I turn off the TV. It's, it's 11 o'clock, midnight. I try to go to sleep, and I find myself just lying awake thinking about the episode that I just watched and what it was saying. And he said, it's a lot better than the crappy one you wrote for. <laughs> now, I, I don't think Next Generation was crappy, but, but now this was coming out of the mouth of the babe. Yeah. I mean, a 16-year-old, and he discovered the original Star Trek, and he's comparing it to one of the sequels and liking the original 
far better. So that, that <laughs> illustrates what Vic was just talking about. All right, so you, know, you, you know, JV, I, I wanted to say real quick, too, I have a lot of uh, fans of my voice work that are anime fans, and they're much, they're, they're younger, they're younger, and they're teens and 20s, and because of Star Trek Continues, and a lot of voice actor friends that I brought into the show, um, these younger kids are discovering, they're watching Star Trek Continues because uh, voice actors that they like are in it, and they're, they've got this instant connection with their parents who loved Star Trek when they were young, and so now they get to watch this with their parents and are discovering this great show from the years past. Uh, we, we have one more segment with you guys, but before we go to break here, here's a, here's a kind of a tough question, and I want both of you to chime in on this. Uh, Vic, you go first, but would there have been a Star Wars without a Star Trek? Oh, I, I think so, but I think, you know, I always laugh when people say Star Wars or Star Trek. Well, it's not one or the other. They're completely different things. I mean completely different things. Star Wars is literally about wars in space, and Star Trek is a journey. It's a trek through space of exploration. And Star Wars had a finite story to tell. But Star Trek is an entire universe of stories. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see them as, as really related that much at all. So yeah, I think it's Star Wars could have shown up without without Star Trek because they're completely different. Do you, uh, Mark? Do you think that um, George Lucas uh, was a Star Trek fan or is Absolutely. a Star Trek fan? I know he was, and and uh, George Lucas has said that there would not have been a Star Trek. Not to contradict you, Vic, because it would have. <laughs> Vic's right; it would have come around in some shape or form. But he said it would not have happened if it wasn't for Star Trek because because that was his inspiration. Uh, to, and I'm sure he was watching Lost in Space and everything else because there's a lot of that type of stuff in there too. But but it was the popularity of Star Trek in the 1970s, and everybody wanted it back, and Paramount wouldn't give it back to us, and that's what got Space 1999 on the air. Uh, they they created that show to try to rip off Star Trek and try to to get the Star Trek audience to come watch it. The reruns were doing that well. And and right at that same time, about a year or two later, is when Star Wars came out. And so it was this, this hunger for Star Trek. And we're watching it five nights a week, but we want to see new adventures. And that's what got the studios to put up the money for Star Wars and Space 1999 and more after that. And uh, Battlestar Galactica probably falls in there somewhere, too. Oh, absolutely. And Clint Howard oh, yeah. told me a yeah. story. Uh, you know, Clint Howard... Um, George Lucas, of course, was involved in uh, uh, American Graffiti, which starred Ron Howard, Clint's yep. brother. And uh, Clint came in and uh, auditioned for a or read for a role in Star Wars. And he's to, he's told me the story; it's in the book. And uh, and he walked in there, and George Lucas was in the office, and he came in to meet him. And George Lucas looked up at him and said, "Balak, the Corbinite maneuver." I mean, I mean, he knew the character, he knew the name of the episode, and, and everything else. So, no, the, the, the inspiration was there. Just like Star Trek brought about cell phones, we would have had them eventually. We would have had a lot of this stuff eventually. But the people who invented these things were watching Star Trek and thinking, why can't we have that now? And the and, uh, same thing with Star Wars. All right, we and got, by the yeah, way, go Clint Howard tells that story in his own voice in the audio. Oh, that's awesome. That's terrific. Uh, tonight we're talking about Star Trek, the original series, with Mark Cushman and Vic Mignona. Uh, Mark, 
we have phrases that have become part of American pop culture, like "Be me up, Scotty. These are things from a television show that lasted three seasons. Uh, this is an indication of how, how iconic this is, right? Right, right, right. And by the way, uh, Vic had a call that came in, so you may have lost him. Oh, okay. And if, if, if you did, you could he's standing by, and you can bring him back on the show. Um, absolutely. Well, you, you, something you need to know, I, I talked about the ratings, uh, JV. You know, Star Trek had an, a weekly audience on NBC of about 20 million people. That's more than the top-rated show has today. Uh, which has maybe 14, 15 million. So Star Trek, even when it was uh, on the network in the 1960s, had more people watching every week than the most popular show today has. And then that audience only built through the 70s and 80s with the constant reruns and then the motion pictures coming in. So, yeah, the the uh, amount of people that have been exposed to Star Trek is just immense. And these catchphrases have caught on like like anything and for quite a while now. Why, you know, we talk about uh, Roddenberry having difficulties with NBC, uh, which I'm sure led to, in part, its cancel- cancellation. But with, mm-hmm. so, with, with something that seemed to have been very, very popular, why did NBC seem so anxious to get rid of it? Because of the, uh, the state of television back in that time. If you let one TV show get away with things, then all of them are going to try to get away with it. And so they had broadcast standards saying what you could do and what you could not do on network television back then. Today, you can do almost anything you want. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. But back then, as we were talking earlier, you could not talk about politics. You could not talk about uh, taboo social uh, subjects, uh, about religion, about sexism, about anything else. You could talk about sex on a limited way, but, but not getting into controversial areas. And Gene Roddenberry kept pushing the boundaries. And so the network wanted to get Star Trek off the network. So what they did, it was popular, so they moved it to a worse time slot and then a worse time slot after that to start eroding its audience to where they could cancel it without having to justify it to their stockholders. So that, that, that's what happened there. And by the way, it was also a very sexy show. Uh, this was America's first look at the mini. Right. And it was actually a micro mini. Uh, the miniskirt came out in England in 1966 in London. Well, right as it's being introduced in England, Star Trek starts broadcasting in September of 1966, and we're seeing all these legs on television. And the only other place you might see that was on the Jackie Gleason show with the June Taylor da- dancers. <laughs> you know, so it was it was really pushing the barriers. It was the first interracial kiss on network TV and things of that nature. And it was just pushing the boundaries beyond what the network was comfortable at that time with the rules that they had in place. One of the things that makes it so unique, and again, going back to William Shatner, and he's he's often uh, portrayed as being overly dramatic, uh, but w- but in a way that really made made the point and made the show work. Um, yeah. Did he did Shatner go into the role in, with the intention of doing that? Yes. Uh, that was the style of acting back then. Uh, uh, so three of the most popular actors on television that they were always trying to get into series were William Shatner. He was offered quite a few series before Star Trek. He did one called For the People, but he was offered The Defenders and uh, several others. Another actor who was very popular then was Robert Cope, who was offered Man from Uncle. He turned it down, but then he did I Spy. Uh, Jack Lord was very popular. He was offered uh, the Captain Kirk role when uh, 
when Shatner wasn't available and uh, Jeffrey Hunter didn't want to come back, they, they went to Jack Lord. And then he ended up doing Hawaii Five O for 12 years. And the technique, because TVs were so small back then, you acted, you projected a little more. You don't have to on the big screen. Right. And you don't have to on the big screens we have now for televisions. But back then, the actors that really caught on were ones who could reach through the television and grab you. And Shatner was an, uh, just perfect for that part. He did it so well. But, you know, we're, we're used to the parodies. And, we're, and, and right. Vic, uh, if you got him back, he could do a really good William Shatner for you the way, you know, he, he Spock, what is it out there, you know. But if you watch uh, Star Trek, in most of the episodes, he doesn't do that. Occasionally in the third season he does because they had a shorter shooting schedule. They couldn't do as many takes, and, they, and the directors weren't telling him to back down as much. You know, just pull it down a little bit, Bill. But if you watch the first couple seasons of Star Trek, his, his portrayal has a lot more subtlety in it than, than you would think based on uh, the parodies that we've seen over the years or even the way he will parody himself now on TV commercials. Another thing that's quite striking about that original series, because many series don't live up to the test of uh, technological advancement in uh, effects, but the original Star Trek does a really good job. Those effects are yeah. still pretty solid. They were state-of-the-art. Nobody had ever seen anything that good on television when that show came on the air. If you want to compare with another show that was running at the same time, Lost in Space, uh, which was okay uh, with the effects. Uh, Irwin Allen really loved uh, special effects, and he did it in Voyage to Bomb the Sea and Lost in Space. Uh, but they, but you would see the Jupiter 2 flying across the backdrop of stars. Star Trek was the first show to film a minotaur against a blue screen and then put in another plate of animation of the moving stars and everything else. It would take them an entire day to do one flyby of the Starship Enterprise with those stars behind it. And they wouldn't know if it worked until the next day after they put the two uh, things together, the, the Enterprise with the star field and so forth. And if the camera jiggled once during that day of filming, they had to throw the whole thing out and do it over again. Uh, the Enterprise was 12 feet long, well, 11, 11 feet 2 inches. That's a pretty big minotaur. It's yeah. bigger than anything you saw in Star Wars. Uh, and Star Wars used uh, miniatures the same way Star Trek had been doing it several years earlier. So it really opened the door to a lot of that type of stuff. We do it now with CGI. But i got to tell you, J.V., I, I prefer watching the, the effects in the original Star Trek because there's a 12-foot model, and it's tangible, and it, it's real. It's got blinking lights. You know it's real. And you watch Next Generation. When we were doing Next Generation, it's animation. It's CGI. And it looks it to me. I can tell the difference. Yeah, I think um, connoisseurs certainly can. Uh, you can see the difference. There's not there's not a soul to it or something. It's hard to define. Um, it, it, do you know, I'm sure you do, uh, the theme song. Who who wrote yeah. the theme song? Because that is... Alexander Courage. One of the best parts And uh, Alexander Courage had uh, been doing music for Lost in Space, uh, I believe for Voice Bomb the Sea. He had... Um, uh, so he had done a lot of science fiction around that time, but he had been doing TV scores and movie scores for many years before. And uh, Roddenberry, and in my book, you see the actual memo, uh, memos between him and Alex, uh, Alexander Courage. And he says, I don't want science fiction sounding music. Uh, I don't want strange instruments or anything else. I want action-adventure music, like if you were seeing uh, a, a ship on the high seas with masts, 
from from the 18th century or so. I, I want music that would fit that as well as it would fit this. And so it, it has that action adventure element to it, which has a great sweep. And uh, and and then Jer- um, uh, Jerry Goldstein did the uh, the music in uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture and kind of picked up from Alexander Courage with that style of music. Now that theme song has an action component to it, but it's got a haunting component to it with that female yeah. voice that that you know mirrors the melody. Um, it's really really haunting, but beautiful at the same time. Yeah, they brought in the female vo- uh, voice during the second season. Uh, they they re-recorded the theme track uh, for each season. Uh, along with the incidental music and and the music within the episodes is so recognizable as well very uh memorable music that 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 uh, the Vulcan march and and all these things that were in these episodes uh, the music in Star Trek was excellent how important was the Vulcan story to the whole series <sighs> extremely important um that's that, that's why there was such a deep mourning when when Leonard Nimoy died is is that character really grabbed us, and and the reason is is we'd never seen a character like that on television before, or or in movies, uh, that especially teenagers could relate to him because teenagers are going through internal conflict constantly, you know, with with worrying about how they're coming across, how are they supposed to be, and Spock had that internal conflict between his Vulcan half and his his human half, and he had emotion. You know, the, the thing about Vulcans don't have emotions, not true. They do have emotion, but they don't show it. They've learned to control it and bury it, suppress it. Well, if, you have, if you're half-human, it's all the harder to do it. So here we have a character who's, who's in constant turmoil and conflict with himself. And I can't think of any other TV show before Star Trek that had that or even after. So, so that's why that character grabbed us so much. But he was also... Wouldn't you love to have him as a friend? Wouldn't you love to have him as your second in charge? And Kirk did. You know, he felt very honored to have Spock as his first officer because this guy is so loyal, and yet he is a walking computer. It's uh, part of the dream buddy. <laughs> yeah, and part of the part of the magic of the the series and the story is the relationship between Kirk and Spock. Absolutely. It's and 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 Nimoy and Shatner loved each other, you know. They, and and like any actors, they can have moments where they they might have conflict too, uh, you know, because Nimoy was getting nominated for Emmys every year. Star Trek was on the air as best supporting actor in an hour long drama, and Shatner never got a nomination. Star Trek was nominated every year for best dramatic series. Uh, so you know there could be a little conflict there, but they they really got along. They really admired each other, and Nimoy told me. Uh, and has said it on other occasions too that uh, that he didn't know what he was doing opposite Jeffrey Hunter in the pilot. There was nothing for him to play off. Uh-huh. But the minute Bill Shatner came onto that show, he had a strong character to play off of, and and he felt his character only worked when he was with Shatner. When they would do an episode where they would have Spock go off on his own and pilot. Uh, shuttlecraft and and so forth he didn't feel those episodes worked very well because he needed that strong human character to bounce off of and i I think we have vic back vic you with us yes absolutely all right perfect no that's okay um we were just talking i'm not sure if you heard this whole part of our conversation we were talking about the relationship between kirk and spock but really between shatner and nimoy um how did you pick up that relationship and how how do you feel you were successful at bringing it to Star Trek Continues? Well, I will tell you that um, 
I think Spock is probably one of the hardest characters to play. A lot of people think, uh, oh, well, how hard is it to just play somebody with no emotion and deadpan? No, no, no. <laughs> Anybody that says that doesn't even understand. Uh, Spock was not without emotion. <laughs> Spock had all the same emotions anyone else did. He just kept them in check and held them under the surface and tried to make them you know, obedient to his logic and reason. Um, and I knew that when I was putting Star Trek Continues together, I needed somebody to play that role who could who could bring that kind of acting quality to it. And a good friend of mine, voice actor friend named Todd Habercorn, uh, I asked him to play the role, and he did an absolutely phenomenal job as Spock. And, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, J.V. If you guys, hopefully you will when, when we're done tonight, Hopefully over the weekend, maybe, or in the, in the week ahead, uh, you and your listeners will watch our series. Um, the writing is so, is so solid, and, uh, and the character relationships are, are so endearing in the same way the original series was. Um, we had a very strong, uh, we had a very strong uh, image set for us. You know, a very strong pattern right. set by uh, Leonard Nimoy and Bill Shatner, and uh, and Todd and and myself. You know, our goal, and then Dr. McCoy, of course, the big three. That's right. Uh, I brought it. I know. I brought another big, uh, another voice actor friend of mine, Chuck Huber, in to play Dr. McCoy. And um, not only are the three of us friends, but they are both really talented actors. And um, we had a great uh, standard set for us by D. Kelly and. Leonard and Bill, and you know, our goal was to just carry that on, and again, make people feel like they were watching a continuation of the show had it not been canceled. Yeah, and I have a little exposure to it as well because um, a few years ago I had Michelle, and I think it was Kim. The, oh, okay, at, sure. at my convention yeah, in Massachusetts. Singer, yeah, Uhura. that's right. Yeah, so at, when I when I had brought them to my convention, I watched it a little bit, so I was fam- I'm familiar with it, and um, because it was such a great. Uh, piece of work is one of the reasons I brought them to the event. So, yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, well, it was a great experience for all of us. We have uh, very little time left, but I think maybe one of the most important questions I have to ask is this, and I will like an answer from both of you guys. Let's start with you, Vic. What, what's your favorite episodes of episode of that original series? <laughs> you know, people always ask me that, and there are probably five or six that everybody uh, says are their favorites, but I have a very obscure favorite. My favorite was a third season episode called Requiem for Methuselah. Uh, in a nutshell, it was about this uh, older man who seemed to live alone, uh, this recluse who lived alone on this planet, and the Enterprise, the Kirk, Kirk and the landing party beamed down looking for a, a substance that they need to combat an epidemic on the Enterprise. And when they beam down, they find out that this guy is not actually alone. He has this uh, young woman that lives with him, and he tells them she's his uh, his uh, uh, like he's been given custody of her. And uh, Kirk falls in love with her, only to find out that she's actually an android, and then to find out that the old man actually was all of these famous people in history. He was immortal. He was, uh, and he he lived hundreds and hundreds of years, and he was Moses, and he was Socrates, and Da Vinci, and 
all of these famous Brahms and all these famous people throughout time. And he created this woman to be an immortal, uh, you know, uh, mate for him. And the thing that I loved about the episode was that at the very end of the episode, you see Captain Kirk um, in, a, in a position, in an, an attitude that you never saw him in in the entire series. He was literally ashamed of his behavior. He was so uh, disappointed in himself and, ha- and embarrassed at the way he acted on the planet. And, uh, and I remember even as a little boy going, wow. He's not just this two-dimensional cardboard cutout hero who just saves the day and, and always, you know, solves all the problems and always has the right answers. He has some, uh, some regrets and, and, uh, and some shame about his own behavior. He's a flawed person just like we are. And even in, our, in Star Trek Continues, our fourth episode uh, kind of sp- springboarded off that episode and explored a lot of uh, a lot of guilt and uh, hidden remorse and shame that Kirk felt from past relationships and 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 people from his past so that was my favorite episode not not a well-known one but I just absolutely loved the character development and you, you can't tell at all that you have studied every episode and watched William Shatner perform <laughs> every scene of well, you know every what? season you know what Jay- when I was a little boy, I used to, we didn't even have video cassette recorders. I used to have an audio cassette player, a, a portable cassette player, and I would sit it by the, the television every day, and I would record the episodes on audio cassette, and then I would slide that cassette player under my pillow at night and listen oh, to wow. the episodes as I went to sleep. And I memorized word for word, sound effect for sound effect, music cue. I, I memorized every moment of the episodes, and, uh, and so I, I definitely love them and remember them well. Mark, about, how about you? Favorite episode? This Side of Paradise. Uh, Dor- my friend Dorothy Fontana wrote that, D.C. Fontana. And uh, in that episode, we see fa- Spock fall in love. Uh, he's mm-hmm. shot with spores from yeah. a plant that allow him to uh, be carefree, and he falls in love with Jill Ireland. And the entire crew abandons the Enterprise because they're all under the influence of these spores, and Kirk is left alone on the ship. And he realizes for the first time how big it is and how lonely it is, and he has to find a way to get his crew back. He has to find a way to break Cupid's spell over Spock. Just an an amazing drama, like so many of the episodes were. Mark, I'm disappointed we didn't have enough time to talk about some of your other work, because I know you've looked at some other shows as well from about the same same period. Um, but maybe we can get you back on to do that. So once sure. again, let people know where they can get a hold of the printed books, the audio book, uh, and your other work. Sure. And if I come back, we should talk about Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, which is a show I think your audience probably knows and loves. Absolutely. I wrote about uh, 12 episodes of that. Absolutely. Uh, the, the books uh, can be found on theseofthevoyagesbooks.com which is a website my publisher, Jacobs Brown Media Group, put up. And you can go there and find all four (coughs) volumes that are out now and the fifth volume that will be coming out, finishing up the 1970s. You can find the audio book that Vic uh, produced and uh, did for us. And and the books, you can get them signed, inscribed, whatever you want if you go there. Otherwise, you can get them anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the whole thing. And Vic, where can people watch Star Trek Continues and find out more about your other work? 
Well, thanks for asking. Uh, www.startrekcontinues.com. All 11 episodes are there free to view and a dozen of wonderful behind-the-scenes videos, making-of videos, blooper videos, interviews with, with several different people involved. Um, you can watch them all there. You can even download um, the DVD and Blu-ray images and burn your own burn your own discs. We have the artwork up there and everything to make your own discs for your own collection. Um, I, uh, I do um, a lot of event appearances. In fact, this weekend I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to go to L.A. and I'm going to be signing autographs at, uh, at uh, Awesome Collectibles on Gage Avenue in Bell, California. So uh, if any of your listeners are, are out there in that area, uh, come by and say hello. I would love to meet you. I'm I'm doing uh, several other events like the ones we talked about, Comic Cons and stuff, uh, throughout the year around the country. And uh, would love for you all to check out Star Trek Continues and tell your friends and family members about it as well. Terrific. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Terrific conversation. Great topic. Look forward to talking to you both again. Thank you, thank Jamie. You. Thank you so much, Jamie. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.